Let's uh, read from Genesis 25, starting at verse 19. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other and the elder will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in the womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so the next reading is Genesis 27, starting at verse 30. After, Jacob fini- uh, after Isaac finished blessing him, and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. He too prepared some tasty food and brought it to his father. Then he said to him, My father, please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, Who are you? I'm your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came in, just before you came, and I blessed him. And indeed, he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, isn't he rightly named Jacob? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered Esau, I have made him lord over you and have made all his relatives his servants. And I have sustained him with grain and new wine. So what can I possibly do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword, and you will serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 to 32. That night, Jacob got up, And took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, 
He sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, Please tell me your name. But he replied, Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. It's come to my attention that sometimes the title of a film or a book kind of says it all. What do I mean? Imagine my surprise when I went to see Finding Nemo 2. I mean, I wonder what that can be about. Um, Finding Nemo, what will that be about? Uh, to an older generation, what about uh, Towering Inferno? The title kind of gives away what the film's going to be about. Um, or my particular favourite, and the reason you may not have heard about it, was because it was so bad, Snakes on a Plane. What's that going to be about? That's why it uh, kind of bombed at the box office. Sometimes the title of a film or a book says it all. 41 years ago, John White wrote a book called Daring to Draw Near. Daring to Draw Near is, is a classic. I encourage you to get hold of it if you can. It's on Amazon. And the reason it says it all is because the title of the book says it all. It's a book that talks about the, uh, the pattern of prayer and the need we have to pray. But when we come into contact with the Almighty, when we come to approach God as sinful people, it's something very dangerous. It's something very inspiring. It's something very difficult. That's what the whole Bible's about. Will we, as people, dare to draw near to the Holy Almighty Creator, Sovereign Lord of all? That's what the Bible's about, this big conundrum. How can we, as people who've been created by God, but who battle and wrestle with sin, who are not holy, how can we, how possible, how is it possible for us to come in contact with, to come to a relationship with the one who made the universe? It's what the whole Bible is about, daring to draw near to God. That's what this series is about, drawing near to God. If you go online, uh, a lot of stuff is written about a lot of stuff, but a lot of stuff is written about spirituality, and there's a common theme to the books that you can pick up online or in that dying phenomena. I think it's called a bookstore, but you don't find many of those. There's one of those things that is common to these books. It will not say that there is a problem for us to draw near. Self-help books, spiritual books will say, if you want to get close to God, you need to look inside, not outside. Self-help books will say, if you want to get near to God, you just need to go to the right place at the right time. 
It's exactly the opposite to what the Bible says. In 1958, going back further, there was once a man called Rudolf Otto. Rudolf Otto wrote a book called The Idea of the Holy. The Idea of the Holy. He looked at the religions of the world, and he said, for all their differences, there is a common thread. Each religion of the world say, if you want to come in contact with the Almighty, it's a perilous thing. It's a dangerous thing. He says it's very frightening. And if you want one passage to describe how frightening it is to come into contact with the God of the Bible, Genesis 32 just does, it does just that. Because we find that God is a wrestler, not Mickey Rourke in a recent film that Bruce Springsteen sung so eloquently about. But we find God is a wrestler. This is right towards the end of Jacob's life. It's the climactic event that all of the previous chapters that we referred to point to. And at this point, to understand this passage, Genesis 32, correctly, we need to break all the sermon rules and spend about 10 minutes looking at his life. Please track with me. Because if you want to understand this narrative, you need to begin at least in Genesis 25, and that's where we began. So let's begin at the beginning. The first moment in Jacob's life comes before his birth, and it's there in that quote from Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. In the ancient Near East, before we look at this sentence, there was a rule that said, if you were born first, if you were the firstborn son, you got everything. It's not like Monopoly at the start of the game when you give out equal amounts and we see who wins. If you were born first into a family, especially firstborn male, you got the lot. And the, uh, any siblings that followed after you, you just got kind of piecemeal. It was completely unfair. And God speaks to Rebecca before her sons are born and says this, there are two nations in your womb, Genesis 25, 23, and two peoples from within you. One people will be stronger than the other, here's the bit to listen to, and the older will serve the younger. The first one out will serve the last one out. In other words, God is going to turn it right on its head. And so before C-sections came, before an anesthetic came, before um, midwives were officially trained, there's a unique birth that Genesis 25 tells us about. Esau comes out, he's all hairy, and we meet this family tree, hairy Esau. He's covered with carpet world-like hair of the red variety. He's the first ginger person in the whole Bible. And then we've got Jacob. Jacob comes out with this extreme delivery, hot on the heels, pun intended, holding onto the heel of Jacob. And both names are significant. The hairy one, the red one, is Esau. But then Jacob pops out, hot on the heel, holding on. And either it's holding of the heel, his name means, or deceiver. Very, very important. And straight away, in the beginning of the story, you've got prophecy, names, and then you've got a birth that foreshadows how these two boys' lives will be intertwined all the way through Genesis as the narrative flows and follows. As we go on, you've got Genesis 25, Genesis 27. Twice, Jacob, the deceiver, deceives his brother and his father. Genesis 25, he steals the birthright. Genesis 27, he steals the blessing. One time deceives the brother, second time deceives the father. Going to carpet world, Jacob puts on some carpet-like materials, some animal fur on his hands. 
cooks a great meal, so he tricks his aging father, whose eyesight is fading terribly and quickly. And so Esau is filled with rage. I'm going to get you. I'm going to kill you. And so what does Jacob do? He speaks to his mum, and mum says, run. Don't fight, run. And so he runs, runs for his life to a faraway land, away from the land of promise, just like Elimelech back in Ruth. And he's going to wait. And he's going to wait for the inheritance to come. And in Genesis 28, God shows up again in this story. Way before Led Zeppelin got the idea, there is a stairway to heaven. But Jacob sees the stairway, not Robert Plant. And what's interesting is that Jacob sees the stairway. He, his character is revealed again as he speaks to God. And, and what he says is, I'm going to negotiate with you, God. I know what you owe me. I really deal with everybody else like Arthur Daly in the Old Testament. And if I can deal and deceive my way with my father and my brother, well, I think I can deceive you and deal with you as well. And so this is what he says, Genesis 28, verses 20 to 21. He strikes a deal with God. If God will be with me and give me food and protection, and if he will help me finally get home, back to the land, and my people safely, I will make the Lord my God. It doesn't say this in Hebrew, but imagine it says something like, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's exactly what Jacob is doing. He's trying to strike a deal with God in Genesis 28, 20 to 21. And what's fascinating is, is as you read through 29 through 31, God, in the most miraculous and unmerited way, blesses Jacob with a family, with uh, crops and with harvests and with animals. That although he's in the wilderness in the middle years of his life, although he's run away with God, or from God. He's run away for his own safety from his brother Esau because he knows he's got a number on his life, that bullet with his name on it coming from his brother. God still blesses him. And then we get towards our chapter, chapter 32. And in the first part of the chapter, it's, it's kind of like high noon because everything in his life has come to this point. The pressure is building like a pressure cooker. And you know that Jacob and Esau are finally going to come head to head. Jacob in the wilderness comes to his senses and says, what I want is my land back. I want my family back. I've run away from Esau. I've lost everything. I'm going to go back and I'm going to meet him and we're going to have it out. And so at the beginning sentences of 32, what you've got is uh, Jacob determined to go back to take on his brother. But again, as the arch spin doctor in chief of the Old Testament, he's very strategic. And he divides all his uh, growing empire into two and says, I'm going to do a spread bet, so to speak. If Esau comes with all his great army, he could kill half of us, but half will go free. So I'm going to split up. I'm going to divide and try and conquer. So he splits up, and then he sends seven lots, wave upon wave, of offering towards his brother Esau, who's on his way towards him, to try and soften the blow. And then he splits up his family itself and sends them away from him. And so that by the time we get to verse 22 of chapter 32, Jacob is all alone. And now we can slow down. Jacob is all alone, verse 24 of chapter 32. He's all by himself. And then suddenly he realizes he's not alone. He realizes that someone is behind him 
and he turns and a mysterious figure attacks him. Look at verse 24 of chapter 32 as we slow down. A man wrestled with him, with Jacob, until daybreak. Now what is not going on here? What is not going on here is a middle-aged man in lycra. This is not a middle-aged man in lycra on a uh, kind of puffy mat with lights on them in front of people who want to score points. This is not that image that you see in the Olympics. Nothing like it. This is really a blood sport. This is an ancient way of fighting. He's fighting for his life, Jacob. He's convinced it's going to be Esau. That's what he's prepared for. And notice they're absolutely matched in strength. Very interesting that the man could not overpower Jacob. Because that's the only way that you'd have a wrestling match for hours. Wrestling matches are normally minutes. Points are scored, people are put on their back, they get a three count and they're out. But here we're told that Jacob couldn't prevail. But did you notice, neither could the man. And it's very interesting that both people seem equally matched. Jacob's thinking, who is this? I expected to be wrestling my brother, Esau, who's ruined my life. Because of Esau, he's driven me away. I've lost my family, I've lost my land, I've lost my inheritance, so to speak. And then we get to verse 25 of chapter 32. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wretched as he wrestled with the man. I like watching sport, a lot of it. One thing I've never had personally done to me is any part of my body dislocated. There's something uh, perverse about my nature, so I'm quite interested to see a rugby player get their finger popped back in. Football players never happen there till be rolling off the pitch. But if you play a proper game like rugby, sometimes the, the finger just gets popped back in and you see these burly blokes squeamishly thinking, ow! I, it's something I've never experienced, and thankfully and hopefully I never will. But notice what happens as the man touches the hip of Jacob. Just a touch, Jacob is changed forever. He'll never be able to walk appropriately again. It's utter pain. It's not popped back in, it's popped out. And the contest is over. It's ended at that point. Verse 25, the man could not overcome Jacob. But if you go down to verse 26, what's even more interesting, it says, the man said, let me go. It's as if these two equal forces are battling. And the man says to Jacob, you're equal to me, let me go. That word touched is exactly what it says. It's touched, it's not grabbed hold of. It's not ripped out of a socket with a lot of force. It is literally the slightest touch from this person, and his, Jacob's entire leg is paralyzed forever, and the game is over. The match has come to an end. This person has got intense strength that he's been keeping in reserve. This, this figure, although it looks like they're absolutely equally matched, just with the slightest touch, this strong hip joint has popped out so that Jacob will live for the rest of his life, and the batter is over. But something happens. Look at verse 26. Why? Why are you still holding on? Why are you still holding on to me? 
What this person did to Jacob meant that his life would be changed forever. He was in a battle that he couldn't win and he would remember this meeting for the rest of his life. But what does Jacob say? Why is he holding on? Verse 26 to 27. I want your blessing. Whoever you are, I want your blessing and I want your name. Here is Jacob for all his life. There's been this tussle since birth with his brother. He's been fighting against him. He's run away from him. And now he thinks he's going to confront him on this day. He's made all these preparations, his elaborate sweetening of the deal with these seven waves of blessing going towards him at the start of the chapter. But one thing he wants, fighting with this person, I want your blessing and I want your name. Because all his life, Jacob has not just been fighting against Esau. This is the point. He's been trying to wrestle God. He's been wrestling against him. He's trying to control him. He thought his main problem in his life was his brother. But actually, this account shows us that Jacob's main issue was with God. You didn't give me the dad that I deserved. You didn't give me the father I wanted. I never knew my father's love. I knew the love of my mother. You've driven me away from my land. I've lost my dad. I've lost everything. All his life, Jacob has been wrestling with his brother. But really, he's been wrestling with God. And he says, I want to see your name. I want to know who you are. And I will not let you go until you bless me. It's the story of uh, Genesis 32. Now, we could go home at that point. But uh, now I want to rub it in. Since I'm breaking all the rules, here are four things, not three. Here are the lessons from the life of Jacob, and now we're going to go slower still. What are we to learn from the life of Jacob that we've just whizzed through? Here we go. If you want to draw near to God, the first thing you need to learn is this. Just like Jacob, you and I have been fighting against God all along in our lives. If you want to draw near... The first thing you need to learn is this, and God needs to show you you cannot learn it yourself. That we've been wrestling with God's provision for our lives. God, you've not given me the life that I've deserved. You've not given me the figure that I want. You've not given me the husband that will be kind to me. You've not given me the success that I desperately want and deserve. If I had this mom and this dad, then my life would be different shape than it is today. If I had those talents, then I could live a life like that person rather than the limitations that you've given to me. You've not given me the life that I've deserved. You've not planned the life that I wanted. When you say those things in your heart, in your darker moments, and we all do, who are we fighting against? I think we're just like Jacob. And in our heart, just like Adam and Eve, we doubt God's goodness and we doubt his provision for our lives. We don't trust God. And one of the lessons you need to learn, the first lesson you need to be taught, if you want to know who God is, is that we've been fighting with God all our lives. The first lesson. But when you've learned that, you're on your way. You can begin to draw near to God. Because uh, God could have wiped Jacob out immediately, couldn't he? And yet in his restraining grace, he simply touches him, touches his hip. But Jacob knows, and he'll never forget, 
that all his life he's been fighting with God and from now on he'll learn from that experience and he'll limp along in dependence on God. First thing you need to learn if you're going to draw near to God is you've been fighting God all your life and so have I. Here's the second one. And this is where it gets painful. The life of Jacob shows that God works in a unique way. God has to wound you to show you his grace. God has to wound you to show you his grace. Some people think that being a Christian would make their life easier. Some people think that becoming a Christian means you have a religious insurance and you're kind of impervious to pain. That is not true. Look at the life of Jacob and look at the whole Bible. The Bible teaches us and the story of Jacob shows us again. God has to wound you in order to show you his grace. That can be emotional, it can be physical, it might be psychological. But we're so confident in our own ability that when God draws close to us, it's with a wound, a wound of discipline, a wound that shows our limitedness, our neediness. It's a wound that shows us our dependency on him, his goodness, and our inability to live life in our own strength. I mean, this wound that he gives Jacob so that he limps all his life, it's so much less than he deserved. It's a, it's a wake-up call. It's a wake-up call to God's power and his need. God's goodness in showing him his weakness and our desperate need in showing us that we are dependent on God for life and for living. It's so much more than he deserved. And let me ask you, friend, have you got your limp? It might not be on the outside, it may not be physical. But in my experience, every Christian has a limp. Every Christian has a wound. Because if you want to draw near to God, you need to understand that you've been fighting against him all along, not your way, but my way. And the way God gets close to his people is that he wounds you to show you his grace. Here's the next thing. The only thing you really need in your life is to know God. The only thing you really need to know in your life is to know God. What did Jacob need? I need my land back. I want my family back. I want my inheritance back. I'm here in the wilderness. I want to go home. That's what I need, and I need to go through Esau to get it. No, says Genesis 32. What you need is to hold on to God and not let go. In the beginning of one of his books, Finding God, Larry Crabb tells the story of Dr. Charles Smith. He dedicates the book to him. He says, I dedicate this book to Dr. Charles Smith, listen carefully, who prayed that God would let his cancer come back if it meant getting nearer to God. And in the last year, he found God in a way he never had found him before, just before he died of cancer. Those are weighty words. Here's a man that says, I want you to bring anything into my life or another way, you can take anything out of my life as long as I have your face. And here's Jacob saying, I will not let you go until you bless me. Show me your face. Tell me your name. Here I am in pain. I've got no resources. You showed me my weakness, but I'm holding on to you and I'm not going to let go because you're the source of life. I will not let you go until you bless me. Take anything away from me, but I don't want to lose you. 
if you're thinking that guy, Dr. Charles Smith, is clearly crazy, who on earth would say that? Can I humbly say to you, you don't have the reference points that he has. You don't know how great it is to know God. You don't know what a joy it is to know that your sins are forgiven. You don't know what it's like to have a personal relationship with your maker. That's why Dr. Charles Smith can say, I'd rather have cancer come back. I'd rather you take something away from my life. But one thing please don't take away from me is your presence. I want to know you. I want you. Now, here are two things that you could do, friends. How can you grapple with God in the closeness and the nearness of pain and suffering? What does it mean to hold on to God like Jacob does and not let him go until he blesses you? What does that mean? Two words, pray and obey. Pray and obey. If you want to let go of God and not know his blessing, these two words don't apply to you. If you're walking through pain, if tears are friends at the minute, listen in very carefully. Holding on to God means you pray when you don't feel like it. You pray, having read the books on prayer, and you still don't know what it looks like. You pray, and you still think that God is far away from you, but you keep on praying, and you're determined with your open Bible to say, God, please, please don't leave me as I am. Please don't let me go until you show me more of yourself. You pray until you pray, because you know that God is the one thing you long for and need and the person you used to know. Think about Jacob as he's holding on to God in this moment. He said, I will not let you go. He's been wrestling. He's physically absolutely shattered. He's got blood on his knuckles because there are no mats here. There's no lycra in sight. He's got blood on his knuckles. He may be crying, he's got bruises, he's got bumps, but what does he do? I will not let go of you, because I want to know you more personally. The people who find God, in my experience, are people with open Bibles, and who sit down every day, or as often as they can, and they say, I'm going to pray until I hear God speak to me. I'm going to keep on praying. I may not delight in it, but I'm going to fight through this patch. Lord, please show yourself to me. There's no alternatives to it. You pray until you pray. And then you obey. What do I mean obey? The other way you can hold on, asking and wanting to know more of God when time is hard, when suffering is real, when tears are friends, is that you obey even if it's impractical. Even if it's impractical. There you are at work. You know that if you lie, if you lie in this context, if you lie in this conversation, if you lie on this form, if you fiddle that number then life will be easier for you. So obedience is impractical in that moment. But you know it's wrong. The way you hold on to God is you pray in suffering and you obey even when it's impractical, even when it's hard, even when it's easier to tell a lie rather than the truth. You're never going to change unless you do those two things when life is hard and when life is hurting. And then here's the fourth thing to finish up. Who wins in this scene? Genesis 32. I think it teaches us that we win by losing. This is not talking about Liverpool, Man City this afternoon. Certainly not talking about South Africa last night. But here's this last thing that Genesis 32 teaches us. Jacob looks on God's face, we're told and yet he doesn't die. How is that possible? 
How does Jacob look at God's face? And he names the place Peniel, because I looked on the face of God and I wasn't killed. Why was Jacob spared? Why was he not consumed by the glory and majesty and perfection and holiness of God? Why did God only touch him? Thought about that? Why does God not treat Jacob as Jacob deserves and every sinful human deserves? And here comes God in verse 25, and it says, he could not overcome him. Why doesn't it just say that God refused to overcome him? Why does it say he could not overcome him? That seems strange, and I think there's a hint here. The moment when the uh, mysterious stranger, when the man's identity is revealed with just a touch, just a touch, not a wrench, not a force, just a touch, the power of this man dislocates his hip indicates his identity and he could have won the battle very easily with a show of his might and power but just a touch shows his strength but imagine if God displayed his glory and his power fully he would have won the battle but he would have lost Jacob you see that if God would have displayed his power and his glory at that point, rather than just a touch, if he'd used his arm with his full force, he would have won the battle magnificently. But he would have lost Jacob. And it's just the same with Jesus. Imagine if Jesus came to earth to defeat sin and suffering, and he displayed his glory in a unique way every single day, and he said, follow me, all of you. He would have won the battle, but he would have lost us. Imagine if Jesus said, I'm going to wipe out evil from the face of the earth. I'm going to wipe out every time I see any sin. He would have won the battle and displayed his power, but he would have lost us. Jesus Christ came just as God came to Jacob, you see, friends. Jesus came in weakness, and God came in weakness to Jacob. Didn't display his full glory. Didn't, uh, didn't display his full face. Or he would have consumed Jacob. No, Jesus Christ came 2,000 years ago just as God came to Jacob in Genesis 32, limiting himself. He just touched his hip and it popped out and he limped for the rest of his life. Jesus Christ came just like God came. Because it looks, if you just look at the results of Genesis 32, it looks like Jacob lost badly, doesn't it? He lost. The other guy won. God won. And yet what does verse 28 say? Jacob, your name is Israel, for you have wrestled with God, and you have won. Genesis 32 is a perfect picture of what it means to win by losing. The reason Jacob could only get a touch of God's wrath is because Jacob's greatest son came, and he took it all. He took every last drop. If just a touch would do this, to Jacob, what would it mean for all of God's wrath to come down on his son? All of his power, all of his might, all of his justice. Now Jacob won through losing. Jacob was saved because of the weakness of God, the restraint of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God. And that's how you and I are saved too, as we draw near to him. How should you treat a God like that? You should draw near to him in confidence through his son.